Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 24th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Sue Graham Johnston, the president of 128 Technology in Burlington. I have to admit, one of the best things about doing this podcast is the opportunity to dig deep into the background of our guests. When I'm doing the research on each person, there's always something that comes up that really helps take the story to the next level. Well, in the case of Sue, as I was doing my research on Google, I was blown away to see a connection to an amazing story that made headlines across the world for a great charity, that being the Make-A-Wish Foundation. You see, Sue and her husband were two of the key people that helped grant a wish for a boy named Miles Scott, who ended up being Bat Kid for the Day in San Francisco and fight crime alongside Batman, who was played by Sue's husband, EJ, and rescue the damsel in distress, who was played by, you guessed it, Sue Graham Johnston. It is truly an amazing and heartwarming story that we talk in length about, plus she also shares the details on how they've played a role in crashing the Make-A-Wish Foundation's website, not once, but twice. In addition to this great story, we cover a lot of ground. We also talk about her professional accomplishments, which there are many, what she learned at Oracle in terms of operational leadership, 128 Technology, why she joined and what the company does. Plus, we also talk in detail about her passion around very important topics like addressing the pipeline issue of women in STEM roles and working to fix the gender pay gap. Okay, without further ado, here's my interview with Sue. Sue, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Keith. Nice to be here. All right. So when you uh, joined 128 Technology as president, there was a press release and I'm like, Oh, who, you know, who's Sue. And I, like, I obviously checked out your background, I'm like, wow, amazing background. But as I was preparing for this podcast, you know, I Google the person's name just to make sure I'm covering all the bases. And I was just blown away to find out that you and your husband were the team behind bat kid, which is the make a wish campaign, just a crazy viral amazing story. So I just wanted to talk to you about that. So tell me what that that experience was like. That's extraordinary. Sure. It was, you know, one of the most amazing things I've ever done. And it completely restores your faith in humanity. Uh, We were approached by uh, Patricia Wilson, who was the head of Make-A-Wish in in Northern California, because of some work that we'd done like 10 years previously with them. And so she knew that my husband was a bit of a tinkerer and engineer and also an acrobat. Um, and they had this young boy, Miles Scott, who wanted to be a superhero and wanted to come to a city and meet a real superhero and learn from the big guy how it's done and basically be a superhero for a day. So we thought, how much fun. Uh, and it, most of their events are pretty small scale. So the last time we'd done something like this, it was about 200 people. Uh, and so we recruited our friends in. And we engineered a bunch of fun things to make it look realistic, like a fake bomb that I was tied to. And my husband built a wrist projector so he could record and project video from the police commissioner. Uh, And so we wanted to make it as real as possible. You were the damsel in distress. I was the damsel in distress, which is not my typical role, but I played it for the day. Uh, And, you know, we enlisted our friends to come in and put out the call on social media for a crowd. Now, like I said, a crowd is usually 200 people and they had 20,000 people respond. Oh my God. So what we thought was a little event turned into like police street closures and an escort for the day. 
Um, and, you know, true to most damsels in distress, when I wasn't on the train tracks being rescued, I was actually driving the truck and hauling the trampoline and doing all of the background <laughs> things, you know, to make everything run smoothly for the day. Um, but it was great. We had about 2 billion media views from the event. Oh, my God. That's all over crazy. the world. Um, and it actually was President Obama's very first Vine video was congratulating Miles on saving Gotham City. Was it really that? Wow. That is, I mean, obviously I remember when it happened, it was all over the news and just such a heartwarming story. Yeah. If you ever want to recreate it, there was a beautiful documentary that was done. So if you're having a bad news day, I recommend getting it from Netflix. Yeah, Cause people are donating, like, I mean, the, like uh, the Batmobile was like a Lamborghini, right? So people are like just loaning their cars for the day and Yep. We had two Lamborghinis. Um, they had satellite trucks because, uh, you know, all of a sudden it became a huge media event. And um, the board of the SF Opera um, engaged. And so we had kind of a community in the Bay Area where SF Opera helped with the costumes for all of the characters. Um, Twitter was right down the street. So they actually had people from um, Twitter who were on the bus who were live tweeting it. Um, we had volunteers, Clever Girls Collective did a whole social campaign on it. So it was, it was just amazing. People came out of everywhere to really rally around Miles. And what's even better is, you know, four years later, he's cancer free. Oh, my God. That's awesome. And this wasn't the first time that you crashed Make-A-Wish website. Like this is the second time that you had crashed the website for Make-A-Wish Foundation, which, again, extraordinary. So yeah. So your husband had created a video game for a child who wanted to help. So it sounded like it was a video game that helped uh, patients understand what they were going through. Like yeah. A, a game so around. we say he had finished his treatment, so he was out of the hospital, yeah. and he thought, wouldn't it be great if the kids still going through treatment could play a game to help them get through cancer? Right. And uh, so Make a Wish reached out to all the major gaming studios, and um, they got turned down because it takes millions of dollars to make a game. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of my girlfriends reached out to me and said, hey, doesn't your husband make video games and wouldn't this be something he'd have fun with? Um, so EJ volunteered and, and worked with Ben to make the game over six months. Um, ben got grounded once and I think it was harder on EJ than it was on Ben. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they built the game and they released it for free on the Make-A-Wish website. They had a quarter of a million downloads. And this was, oh my gosh, probably 15 years ago. Right. Um, and they, if people volunteered to translate it into different languages, so it was translated into nine languages. And um, a year after it was released, they actually won a um, compassion award from the Dalai Lama. So they got to meet the Dalai Lama and were honored by him, which was an incredible experience. That is awesome. Again, an extraordinary story, Sue, but uh, let's take a step back, uh, love to learn more about your background. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in a tiny little town called Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Very nice. In fact, it's so small that when I was graduating in mechanical engineering from Stanford, they thought it was a joke. And I actually had to come into the graduation office or the administrator's office with my driver's license to prove that I was actually from this tiny little town in Pennsylvania. That is too funny. And But then you ended up uh, going to high school in, in Massachusetts? Yep. Went to Andover with my sister and three of my cousins. So it was kind of a family affair there. Uh, and then the last snow my senior year was April 28th. I think we're on course to not quite be there this year, although it's been a tough re-entry. 
And so I decided that California was the best option and I went out to Stanford. And, and why did you select Stanford other than the obvious? <laughs> At the time, I thought I would major in physics and Stanford has a linear accelerator and I could get a, a freshman advisor who worked in particle physics. And I thought that was pretty amazing. Okay, so how did you even get interested in that? <laughs> I was always fascinated by science. Uh, okay. So from an early age, my, my father was a physician, but he was also a researcher. And so he, you know, he always wanted us to be doing experiments and things like that. Um, and so we did all the science fairs when we were kids. Uh, and I just always loved math and science. In fact, I never really believed anybody who said that boys are better at it than girls because the top 10 students in my school were all girls. So it just wasn't part of my reality that girls weren't supposed to be good at math and science. Um, and I, you know, I, came into physics in my senior year and I um, had a bit of a stutter step. I, I started in a physics class where my math just wasn't quite up to it. So I dropped down to a different physics class and I had a female teacher and she was amazing and she got me really excited about physics. And so I thought that's what I want to do. Got it. Okay. And then after you graduated, what, what was your career straight out of school? Um, so I ended up doing um, at, at Stanford, if you do a master's and an undergrad, they call it co-term. Okay. I did what's called slow term, where it took me five years to get through college <laughs> uh, because I kind of meandered through um, various majors. And so I did that uh, for three years and then came back to the East Coast and worked for Bell Labs here as a systems engineer. And I had a great mentor and, and advisor while I was there. And he said, Sue, I'd love to hire you. Um, but you don't have an accredited degree. And so I can't offer you a job. And I'm like, well, this is a problem. I'm graduating from college and I need a job. So I said, how do we fix this? And he, you know, I went back to Stanford, called my parents, told them I was going to redeclare mechanical engineering as a senior, <laughs> and then I'd need to stay a fifth year. But getting that advice at the right time in my college career made a huge difference. So I majored in mechanical engineering, came out, um, the it's hard to imagine at the time, but actually things were in a recession. So I found it very difficult to get a job as an engineer. Uh, so I worked in management consulting early in my career, but I always wanted to go back into engineering to the point where I had my graduate school references written before I left college mm -hmm. um, because I always knew I wanted to go back and do a master's in engineering. Uh, so three, uh, three years out of school, I came back and did a, a dual degree program. So I did a master's in manufacturing systems engineering and an MBA back at Stanford. Got it, okay. So then once you graduated with your combined program, your master's and your MBA, that's when you got into the root of what you were looking to do initially, right? Where you joined Sun Microsystems? Yeah, I, you know, when you're making a career change, one great thing you can do is test it out. So mm -hmm. I thought if I really want to go into manufacturing, how about I go to the middle of Rust Belt US and work on diesel engines? And if I really like it there, then it's probably the right career choice. Okay. Um, so I spent the summer working on fuel injectors for diesel engines, which was a, a great job, fabulous company, but not where I wanted to be. Right. So if you're in manufacturing in the early 90s um, and you want to stay in California, you move into tech. So at the time, there was still a lot of manufacturing in the Bay Area, and I joined Sun Microsystems as a printed circuit board um, assembly engineer, basically, working with our suppliers and working with manufacturing to get printed circuit cards through the manufacturing process. 
Wow. So how is that as far as the foundation of your career and things that it taught you as like foundation level stuff? I, I think it was a fantastic job. And I yeah. would really recommend that anybody in any job actually take a line job. Uh, so what, you know, what it taught me is, um, you know, basically you have to plan ahead. I thought I was going to be fired the day we ran out of labels because we couldn't produce. And so you have to start thinking about how do you plan things. Um, the other thing is you recognize that business is a team sport. So we had multiple shifts of people. Um, you know, a lot of people working on the line are just coming in to do, do their job. And not a lot of people share the context of what you're doing and why you're doing it and why it matters. So I spent a lot of time as an engineer working with the line, uh, you, our factory head and, and our uh, production workers to help them understand what we were doing um, and, and basically building a sense of team, which came invaluable for me because about a year and a half later, we were launching one of our biggest products. And this was when Sun was going through the roof. I mean, we were uh, growing by about 70% a quarter. Uh, and one of our suppliers really fell down on us and couldn't produce the product. So I called Joe Graham, no relation to me, um, but he was the head of manufacturing. And I said, Joe, I need people who can rivet. Uh, and so we recruited a people of, of um, you know, assemblers off of our production floor, sent them over to my supplier. We riveted till two in the morning, got the chassis built, got the product out the next day. And none of that would happen if I hadn't kind of worked on the line shoulder to shoulder with people and really built that sense of team and that sense of mission for making the company successful. And for context, this was 1997. Seven. Okay. Yeah. So the dot com, dot com bubble was blowing up and people were, you know, technology was obviously just, uh, you know, the internet was blowing up and didn't like Sun Microsystem actually wasn't one of their slogans like they were like the dot of dot com or something the like dot that. Dot com. Yeah. yeah. I remember that. So you were essentially building the big server like the big servers that Sun Microsystems Absolutely. Produce? Build, wow. um, you know, build everything from the little servers um, to the really, really big servers. Um, right. In my last role at Sun, I actually had responsibility for all of the engineering across the whole product portfolio for the, the production and operation side of the house. So like, so that's massive. <laughs> so how do you manage an organization like that? That's like, I, I would imagine it's global. It's, uh, I can't imagine the revenue that you, that ultimately fell under that business yeah, line. Um, you know, it's actually not even the biggest teams I, team I've managed. Um, the biggest team I've managed was about 6,500 people spread across 20 different countries. Wow. Uh, but, you know, even from the smallest team I ever had, I would say from my first management job, uh, every job I've had has had remote employees or global employees. Mm -hmm. And so there are, you know, there are a couple of things I learned. Uh, one is, you have to be really clear. So um, people all want to understand where where they're going, what the goals are. People generally come to work wanting to succeed. So the clearer you can make the mission for people, the easier it is for them to do what you're trying to accomplish. The second thing is you have to communicate it. And even coming here to 128 Technology, where we're about 100 people, but we are um, people in different countries, um, I think all communication benefits from being more structured. So when you have people on the phone, when you have people where English isn't their first language, having things written down and simplifying the communication really helps. And then just communicating, communicating, communicating. When you have remote employees, there's no substitute for face-to-face. -face. 
Um, so, you know, I've had jobs where I've been out of the country 25 days of the month, um, not my preference, um, but, you know, no matter what level of virtual communication you have, there's still no replacement for really engaging with people uh, person to person. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess eventually some microsystems was acquired by Oracle, right? Yep. In 2010, we were acquired by Oracle. Um, I was probably one of the people who was thrilled about that acquisition. Um, not a lot of people are, but <laughs> you know, I, I think Oracle has incredible operational leadership. They mm -hmm. are a very well-disciplined, well-run company. And Sun had phenomenal technology, but occasionally lost its way in terms of marrying that technology with great execution. And uh, Oracle really executes. So what was fantastic about being part of Oracle was you were able to bring in all of this great business discipline, these new tools, and a really renewed mission around the technology and uh, drive massive enhancements in the business. So well, no acquisition is easy. I would say, you know, Oracle for me was terrific on a couple of dimensions. You know, one was just learning from tremendous business leaders like Safra Katz and Larry Ellison and Mark Hurd. Um, but secondly, uh, one of the big surprises for me and the most pleasant surprise was the Oracle Women's Leadership Network. Mm. Uh, and so while we were being integrated into Oracle, one of the men that I'd met actually recommended me to be on the executive steering committee of Oracle Women's Leadership. And I met a fantastic group of women. There are some tremendous executives there. But what I loved about it was it focused on leadership, not just women's leadership. And so it was really a mission about growing and developing leadership at all levels in the company, but with a primary mission around building a network for the women there. And it really was my through line for my five years at Oracle. That is amazing. Yeah, Oracle obviously is such a amazing company in terms of what they've accomplished. And uh, it's, it's good to understand more of the inner workings too. And I'm sure that obviously helped steer you down the path of what you're able to do today, which uh, let's talk about what you're up to today. So uh, 128 Technology, which is a company that was founded by Andy Ori, who is a luminary entrepreneur in Boston who's accomplished so much and it's just great that he continues to build companies. What attracted you to join the team there? Sure. Well, that started back at Oracle. So my last role at Oracle, I was running operations for the communications global business unit. And I took that role partly because of my work coming into Oracle from their first hardware acquisition and helping to navigate the territory between uh, a software parent and a, a you know a hardware child and how do we um, how do we make both uh, better so we worked on a lot of the pro uh, the processes to bring the two together so when oracle bought acme packet and techelec um, they asked if i would come over and help with that integration so uh, a few months after the companies were bought i i went over to the cgbu and Andy had left at that point in time, but Patrick was still um, in the company. And so working with Patrick and many of the other leadership team who are now here at 128 Technology, I helped kind of integrate the two cultures and helped the entrepreneurial team get things done in the corporate world and help the corporate world see where it needed to change to not lose the entrepreneurial spirit 
and it was really a great experience. And for me, just a, a you know, a, a, a wonderful opportunity to meet some really incredible people that I connected with, you know, far beyond the boundaries of our professional engagement. Yeah. So um, I would say about, I've been here now eight months. So about a year prior, Patrick reached, reached out to me while I was living in London and said, you know, hey, Sue, we think we've grown this company to the point where we really need somebody like you to help us take it to the next level. Are you interested? And, you know, I was having a great time in Europe and, and really enjoying it. So I said, you know, how serious are you about this? Why don't, why don't we get together and talk? And so I flew out here and we inked the deal over a weekend and I called my husband and I said, how do you feel about Boston? <laughs> my California boy husband. Yeah. Uh, and so here we are, you know, about uh, seven or eight months later, we, we moved to the seaport. Moved to the seaport, got uh, some, a great winter behind yes. you. Yep. yep. <laughs> the never ending winter. Survived, survived that one, got snow tires on my car, reminded myself <laughs> kind of what's great about winter and all of those things I'd forgotten. Uh, but you know, the chance to work with a team like this is just, yeah. you wouldn't pass that up. Absolutely. So let's talk about 128 technology. What does the company do? So we are founded with the principle that we make your networks do what your business needs. So if you think about what we all do today with the network and what businesses try to accomplish, you know, you're downloading Netflix, you're sending email, you're, you're surfing the internet on your mobile phone. The network didn't comprehend any of that. And I, you know, I can vouch for that from my early days working in, you know, building out the, the internet. Uh, and so what happens is companies try to deliver new services and applications, but they find that the network really gets in the way because it was built on this very hardware-centric model of you know, routing a bunch of traffic, but then recognizing that we needed security on top of that. So we add another device to manage security uh, and another device to then load balance all the traffic and yet another device to try to figure out what that traffic is and so on and so on and so on. So it's just become very unwieldy. And what 128 technology was able to do was really reinvent that whole networking paradigm in software because the hardware has gotten fast enough and the so software is so capable that we could really rethink how that whole system should work. And so we've developed a session smart router that comprehends this concept of a session and delivers a, a service-centric fabric. So it makes your network actually provide what your business is delivering, which are, are services and applications. How do you bring a product like that to market? Obviously you have experience doing things just like that at Sun and Oracle. Uh, this is you know, groundbreaking new idea technology. So how do you bring that to market and get you know, people to understand and adopt it? Patrick has this great expression that creating a new venture is a totally irrational act because you just have to will it into existence. So first of all, you know, I would say you really have to solve a business problem. And that's a lot of what I've been focused on since I came here, which is helping the team articulate how the technology solves business problems for companies. Because once they understand the business problem that you solve, um, they get more excited about your technology. And because people have stopped buying technology for technology's sake, uh, I would say maybe that was a, a factor of the early 80s or 90s. But today, everybody's about how do, how do I grow revenue, put new services out there, 
How do I make my business more efficient? How do I uh, enable new capabilities? And so you actually have to solve a business problem for them. When you can connect your technology to the business value, the sales cycle gets much easier. But it's a bit like, you know, Alexander Graham selling the first telephone. Um, you know, there's got to be somebody on the other end of it. So we started small uh, with customers who, who only had a few sites. But now we're in discussions with large multinationals with thousands of sites looking to really solve some of these complex network problems and get their, their networks doing what they need to do. And what else does your role entail? Like, obviously, you're figuring out product market fit and customer pain issues like that. But what else are you responsible for? You know, it's a little bit of everything. So um, all of the different functions in in the, the company report to me. Um, so, for instance, last week I was working on our three-year technology roadmap. Uh, so what do, we, what do we need to accomplish in the next year? What's our vision and where do we see the market opportunity for the next three years? Um, the week before that, we were doing account reviews. Um, so who are the targets that we're working on right now? How do we see our ability to grow in the market? What does sales need from engineering to be able to um, you know, satisfy our existing customers or grow our markets? But a lot of what it comes down to is people. So I spend a huge amount of my time back on the communication theme focused on what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And, and how do you connect to that mission? And then how do I help you as a person in the company achieve your best success? So whether that's coaching, training, development, a lot of on the job, because half of our team is under 30. Uh, and so for many of them, it's their very first leadership role um, or their very first job ever. Um, so how do we help them uh, excel in their careers and how do we help them accelerate their own capabilities? Because at the end of the day, you know, no matter what technology we technology we invent, it really comes down to the people who are here, who believe, who keep the momentum going on the innovation side, and then who convert and and get that belief on the customers to join this journey with us. How do you train people to become better leaders? There are a couple of different ways. Um, I happen to to not be of the view that like leadership is some innate quality that people have or they don't. Uh, I think that leadership can definitely be learned. Uh, part of it is helping people understand uh, what they do that that um, is effective and how they might be more effective in a decision. Got it. Okay. If uh, I'm an entrepreneur just starting out, and um, as I start to hit scale. What advice would you give to entrepreneurs that you know need to scale out their operations, whether if they're building a piece of hardware or software, because you've seen it all. But what, like when you're starting small, I'm sure the problems are X, Y, and Z. As you start to scale, the problems are now A, B, and C. So, what what things can you share with uh, with entrepreneurs that are just starting out, and then once they hit that scale problem? Yeah, so I have a couple. Um, I don't think it matters where you are in that curve, but the best thing you can do is surround yourself with great people. So I have a four-part hiring mantra that's pretty easy. It's, it, you know, is the person can do, will do, damn smart, and damn quick. Wow. Like, I love that. I might use that. Can I use that? <laughs> that's amazing. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> because no, you just don't know what you're going to hit. Yeah. Um, so I think if you hire for attitude and horsepower, people can do just about anything you need them to do. So the first thing is build a great foundation of a team. 
Um, the second thing is hold the team accountable for the results. Be clear about the results you want to achieve and hold them accountable. And this is actually quite hard for early leaders. And, and I've certainly stutter stepped on this a few times in my own career where you'd like somebody so much and you really want them to be successful. But ultimately, like I said, success is a team sport. So if you have somebody on the team who's not succeeding, you need to figure out, can you coach them to success or do we need a new player on the team? So making sure that everybody understands the results and you hold people accountable for them. I think as you move from that kind of hero behavior of the early days, because in a small company or an initial product kickoff or when you're starting a team, um, you can get away with um, people being heroes and getting the job done. When you go to scale, um, heroics don't scale. And so, you know, my personal low point in my career was when we had a, a, a brilliant new product that was coming out and we just couldn't ship it. And so I'm sitting in the cafeteria trying to figure out what I'm going to do about this. And the CEO comes by and he sits down with me and he's like, what can I do to help? And I'm thinking, all right, I probably don't have a job tomorrow if the CEO is coming in and saying, how can I help you, Sue, get over this backlog problem? Um, but what I vowed to myself that day is if I did still keep my job, I would never put my team or myself in a situation where we didn't have a system that supported us getting the work done. So what happened, this was a hardware product, but I was running a, a, about a hundred person software team at the time. And we actually stole their release process and applied it to the hardware infrastructure uh, because we had no metrics about how to release new products um, that were really predictive. So we took a, a chapter out of our software team's book, put that in place, and within about three years, I could predict six months ahead of time whether a product was gonna hit its release date or not, which was pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, but then probably my fourth piece of advice is no matter whether you're small or big, you just have to be there. Um, you can't scale a system by remote control. It just doesn't work, particularly if you've outsourced it. So on the hardware side and software side, a lot of people are you know, leveraging the global workforce, but you know, the learning's on the ground, not on the office. So if you're coding something, if you're building something, you know, you have to be where the action is. So, you know, my last job, I had a great pair of steel-toed boots. So I would get out to the factory in those, you know, heel straps if you're working in electronics, but you've got to get out there and really see what is happening on the ground. Um, and, you know, bring your personal energy to making it happen if it's not happening. Uh, so those would probably be my four pieces of advice. That's great advice. And like manufacturing, that's just like, you know, when you're building software, that is incredibly complex, but when you involve manufacturing too, that's just a whole different layer. And I am just related, I grant, grant a different industry, but, uh, I'm almost done shoe dog, you know, the story of Nike and, and Phil Knight, and just to hear him get that company off the ground and the manufacturing process that he had to go through and learn how to deal with all the factories overseas was just, I mean, that's pretty much a, a good percentage of the book is just that it's just, it's, you know, and he had to be there and fly over and, you know, make sure things were being done right, negotiate and just deal with suppliers. It was great. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, you can't do it over the end of the phone and you can't even do it if you're in the site, but not on the line. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it just doesn't work. I, I remember we sold a, um, you know, built one of the 10 largest supercomputers in the world. 
And we didn't get paid if it didn't show up in Japan uh, on like March 31st by midnight. And at the time, the product yield was zero. Like the product had barely been invented. And we had this really short timeline to deliver it. And so what happened was, you know, we did as much as we could in the US, but I literally chartered a jet to move the factory so we could pick up one day on the international dateline because it was working on my favor. So I planted it in Thailand, <laughs> finished the product in Thailand. I, you know, I was literally on the phone to the CEO with the guys in Japan kind of tracking, was it through customs? It felt like, you know, Elvis is in the building. We're tracking this thing all the oh. way in. And the best moment was when the Japan team sent me the picture of everybody there with the clock on the wall saying 1145. And oh, the product got there with minutes to spare. But, you, you know, you can't just send a PO and hope. Right. You have to really, you know, work it through with your suppliers, build a partnership and see it all the way through to the end. One of the tricky things about hardware that I've come to learn just, you know, from talk, talking to different founders is that manufacturing piece. Obviously, you're not going to have your own factory building what you're creating initially. So how do you pick your outsourced manufacturing partners if you're, you know, early stage startup? Like what advice would you give there? I would, uh, you know, I would say that what's great is there's a broad ecosystem of people who can do the work. So, you know, go through a sound sourcing strategy of putting together, uh, you know, a, a RFP that outlines what you want. The more you can articulate what you want, the better the response is. But at the end of the day, it comes down to who can you work with? Uh, because the the best supplier relationships for me have been the ones where you build a foundation of trust and you recognize that you're both in it to succeed. The ones that fail are when people view a partnership, either you know me sourcing a supplier or me being a supplier, where um, it's a win lose. Like you give me that for free because I have you know I hold the purse strings. Um, you know nobody wins if your partner is losing money because at the end of the day, they'll be out of business. So the the best advice I have is work with somebody where you can trust them and you can build a relationship over the long term. You never want to be trapped in a supplier relationship. So um, I would advise every couple of years going out for quote and really seeing what the state of the industry is, but enter into the relationship with the expectation that you're going to make it work you know, over many years, uh, because manufacturing is is hard and it requires investment on both sides to see it succeed. And uh, but a, a great manufacturing partner will really move heaven and earth to help your product get to market. That's great advice. It's definitely a tricky, tricky spot. What um, you talked about the women's leadership group at Oracle. Uh, and it just seems like you've been very actively involved in helping promote women and engineering. Like what, what else um, have you done in that regard? And, and what can we be doing better now that you've been in, in Boston for, you know, not that long, but enough to know maybe a bit of what's going on here? Yeah. Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> I have two little girls that are 12 and 14. So I'm I'm absorbing as much as possible. Awesome. Well, they are right in my sweet spot because I think the first thing you have to do or we have to do collectively is fix the pipeline. Um, and that starts with getting more girls um, and, you know, anybody, frankly, I'd take anybody more interested in science, math and technology. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll give you a pop quiz here. Okay. 
So how many, how many women do you think were graduating with computer science degrees about the time I went to college? So I started in college in the, in the late 80s, uh, graduated in the early 90s. I would say 5%. Okay, hold that thought. And how many, what percent do you think it is today? 15. All right. So my way off, <laughs> in the mid 80s, 37% of computer science degrees were going to women. Oh my God. Okay. Today it's about 18%. Wow. So that to me, running a software company is tragic. That is a major problem. <laughs> exactly. So it's going the wrong direction. So what I try to do personally is talk to a lot of girls, help mm -hmm. them connect computers to things that they enjoy right. um, and help them see somebody who um, has succeeded in multiple engineering roles where they might never have envisioned themselves. So helping girls get excited about computers, um, some of the things, so going back to the back kick example, one of the things I did was use a computer numerically controlled embroidery machine to make a gag um, that had the Riddler's question marks over it. Right. So not a traditional way you would think of using computers. Um, I also designed a lot of 3D printed jewelry. I made custom cases for my lipsticks, oh my um, things like that. So helping girls see things that are frankly quite girly, right. um, but done on computers uh, and connecting them with technology in a, a way they might not have considered. Uh, because I think that you have to meet girls where they are, um, see how they play, see how they engage, see what piques their curiosity, and then expose them to the broadest range of ideas possible um, to help them see uh, what's exciting about these careers, because those statistics have to change. And it's very, sadly, it's very US centric or very Western European centric. Um, in other parts of the world, uh, the ratios are much closer to 50 50. So for me, it starts about the age your daughters are, um, helping them see what's so exciting about science and engineering and technology. Then I think it moves to, you know, if you can fix the pipeline or even starting with the pipeline we have, how do you make sure that you as a company are driving at least a representative, um, you know, group in your own company or maybe even an overrepresentation of uh, you know, women or minorities in your technology pool. So I think the first thing is you got to measure the pipeline. You have to know uh, what you have. It's really hard to say I'm going to have 75% women in my entry engineering group if only 20% are graduating with engineering degrees. So you have to know the pipeline. Um, you have to measure it to change it. And from my point of view, you don't settle. And I've refused to let managers close positions when they haven't at least interviewed a diverse set of candidates. Because if we're not fixing the pipeline, the one thing we can control is how we bring it into our companies and making sure that we're always seeking the most representative group of people we can. Because if we exclude half the talent in the world, you know, we've missed a huge opportunity to, to bring in new ideas, new thoughts, um, and move the business forward. So you know, the other thing women can do is make themselves easier to find. So for all the women in the audience, like if you want to join a tech company, make yourself easy to find. Um, have a public uh, face, make sure you have a LinkedIn profile. Uh, that will make it easier for companies to find you and hire you uh, and bring you into their talent pool. 
then once you get the, the women in, I think things like Oracle Women's Leadership, where you develop a, a community of women in your company, really help with uh, not only development, but retention of your top female talent. So we were tracking statistics about women's progression through the pipeline, uh, where we felt we could be doing better on that, making sure that there were development programs that were targeted at you know, moving women through from some of those tricky transitions, manager to director or director to vice president or VP to P&L manager. Um, those are all things that companies can do a better job, either internal and external training. And then, you know, personally, I do a lot of mentoring. You know, work with an, a, a wide array of women and men at all phases of their career. Uh, and I think that that's very helpful for filling the skill gap for people. But I think what's more important for getting people at the top level or women at the top levels of a company is something called sponsorship. And I differentiate those two where mentoring for me is how you help the person in the room, like giving them feedback on how did they do that presentation? How did Sue answer this question? Sponsorship is what you do for that candidate outside the room. So this is where you advocate for them into another position, where you create space in the organization to you know, bring a position in for a new female leader or a new minority leader or connect them with other leaders outside of the company to help them move to their, their next opportunity. That's all about sponsorship. And I think that's one area where women almost often mistake the need to build relationships to get themselves sponsored with a belief that they have something to fix. Um, and so they're asking for mentoring when they really need sponsorship and they have the skills they need. So that that's Sue. That's great advice. So I've like I have these conversations with lots of people, but you know, you went into great detail of hey, here's the problem, and these are some ideas on how to fix it, right? So I think these are the lessons that people need to understand, and it's training people, you know, training women to hire based on not necessarily that you have to hire everyone based on pure resume skill, but more on ability and train that person. And then obviously work them into other leadership roles into the company. Yep. I mean, so you have a twin sister who's also in the tech industry in Boston, who's a HubSpot alum, and now she's VP of sales at, at Wayfair, correct? Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, it's just, it is a problem. It's uh, something that I'm passionate about too, that, uh, you know, what you were sharing, I was just absorbing and I'm like, so, you know, some of it, I was like, yes, like that's exactly what needs. That's like the playbook. Yeah, so. I'll tell you, you know, given you have daughters, one of the things you'll start to get more passionate about is the gender pay gap. So we have new legislation coming into play in Massachusetts, um, I think in July, where you won't be able to ask a candidate about his or her prior salary. Right. Yep, I've part, heard of that. Yeah. Part of the thinking behind that is that women um, often don't advocate for themselves and don't negotiate their salary. So if you start with a lower base, you're going to risk perpetuating this differential. And at Stanford Business School, one of my professors was Maggie Neal, and she's a specialist in negotiations. And she did some shocking research, uh, which is for MBA candidates, 57% of the men negotiate their, their entry salary, and only 7% of the women do. And when both genders negotiate, they both get a very similar outcome of about a seven to eight percent improvement in their salary package. But one of the problems is women just don't ask for it. And if I go back to kind of today's computer science graduates, 
you know, one of the disturbing statistics is that in engineering overall, there's still about a residual two to 3% pay differential for women and men coming into the field. In computer science, it's 22%, wow. which was shocking to me. So and I'm shocking. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm proud to say here that we definitely don't have that. And, you know, we're very mindful of that. But I think it's something as business leaders, um, we need to be mindful about. We need to, to look at what we're offering new college graduates. Uh, we need to contemplate kind of, uh, you know, whether people are comfortable or not comfortable in negotiation situations and make sure that all graduates are starting out on the same foot in their careers. And then given some of the challenges that women have with negotiating for themselves, they're actually much better at negotiating for somebody else. So if you want to raise, you want to get a woman advocating for you, um, but help them uh, overcome that societal hurdle. Uh, because in the UK, where I was working for the last two years, we actually had to publish uh, the gender pay gap at all companies over 250 employees. And it, it, created, uh, it created a lot of things. Um, but one of the things it created was a dialogue about gender pay. Uh, and one of the shocking statistics for me out of that was for services companies, think big accounting firms, things like that, when they didn't have to report their partners' um, salaries as part of it, they were right in line with the gender pay gap, which in the UK is sitting at about 18 to 19%. When they added the partners' salaries, their gender pay gap jumped to like 43 to 48%, depending on the firm. Wow. Because women were so underrepresented at the senior levels. It's something I'm hugely passionate about because I believe it starts early, early on. Mm -hmm. Uh, when girls are young, getting them into uh, high-powered jobs, and then helping to to promote company structures around them that will allow them and a whole diverse team to thrive so that you can change that representation the whole way through the funnel. Because you'll never fix a gender pay disparity if you never get balance you know, through the, through the whole life cycle of somebody's career. And it, it benefits all of us. There's countless statistics that show that diversity of all levels in companies really demonstrates itself in better bottom line results. So we should all be very motivated to fix this. And you know, for you, if you were to be the CEO of a, a company, um, male CEOs with daughters have a smaller gender pay gap. Yep. And it, it stands to reason. So men are part of the solution. Right. It's not something, you know, any one group can fix on their own. We all have to come together and recognize that, you know, we're underserving ourselves by not benefiting from the full horsepower of our population. So true. Thanks for sharing all that information because it's uh, obviously stuff that is known, but when you share actual data like that, it just opens your eyes and you're like, wow, such a problem and so much work that needs to be done. Yeah. And I think very motivating to fix it. Yeah. So, uh, you know, mm -hmm. part of why why I'm here and I feel passionate about participating in things like this is it helps, you know, put another voice out for a woman that might reach a young girl somewhere that says, you know, I could do that. Right. You know, I could be that. That inspired me. Uh, yeah. And so if I change another girl's mind about science and technology, it will have been a great afternoon. That is awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, Sue, thank you so much for taking the time to share this great story. We covered so much ground, but it was also just 
inspiring and just to hear what you do with make a wish and obviously your career and what you're doing in women and technology. Uh, appreciate all your time, advice and everything else. Well, thank you, Keith. And thank you to VentureFizz because you're a great part of connecting us at 128 Technology to our community here in, in the greater Boston area, um, both in terms of career opportunities and just the whole ecosystem. So you guys serve a great purpose and we're really pleased to be part of your, uh, your team. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sue. Appreciate it. Thanks. Have a great day. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.